From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the politics of Donald Trump's Supreme Court picks and how Brett Kavanaugh was not on the list of candidates Trump released. How did Kavanaugh end up ahead of everybody else? Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post has that story. Her new book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Also, what happens to pregnant women when anti-abortion state legislatures grant legal personhood to fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses? Katha Pollitt has a report. But first, what if Democrats have already won back enough white working-class voters to win in 2020? Joshua Holland has been studying that question. He's editor of Alternate's 2020 election coverage and also co-host of the podcast We've Got Issues, and he's a contributor to The Nation. Joshua Holland, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Well, some analysts criticize progressives who urge Democrats to focus on turning out their core base. Of course, that's people of color, unmarried women, and younger voters. They say it's a big mistake to give up on working-class whites. And many of our progressive friends replied that it would be a disaster for the Democrats to try to win back working-class white Trump voters by not talking about police misconduct, uh, reproductive health care, and LGBTQ rights. They point out that a majority of white people have been voting Republican for decades. It's nothing new with Donald Trump. And even without winning white majorities, Democrats have won the White House. Obama won only 36% of the white votes in 2012. It wasn't just Obama. Bill Clinton got only 41% of the white votes in his two victories. The Republican Party is a white party. That's a fact. You have a unique approach to this debate. Instead of just punditizing, you present actual evidence. What? What have you got? Let's start with Hillary's performance. Well, I mean, 2016, I think this is what is missing from the, the discussion, right? 2016, there, there are two things that I would note. First of all, the only demographic group that saw a decline in turnout between 2012 and 2016 were African-American voters. Um, this singular decline has been completely lost in the discourse, whereas the political press is largely obsessed over uh, white working class, so-called Obama to Trump voters. Um, the, the other point that I would make, and this seems very apparent to me, is, is that 2016 was a perfect storm. It's very difficult to win the popular vote by three million and lose the electoral college. There were tiny, tiny, tiny margins in uh, half of a dozen states, 80,000 votes in four states delivered the um, election to Donald Trump. Obviously, we had the two least popular candidates in modern polling history. There is compelling evidence that former FBI Director Comey's second announcement that he was re reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails cost her several points in the polls late in the game. The Democratic candidates' emails were hacked and leaked out over the last six weeks of the election. 
So all of that contributed to Hillary Clinton winning just 29% of white working class voters. That is white voters without a college degree. There's a bunch of different ways to define the white working class. And it is extremely difficult to win, obviously, with 29% with of white working class voters, even though she did win the popular vote, because while they are a minority of the electorate overall, there are six key kind of battleground states where they represent a majority of voters. So you, you do need to win 35% of this group. So what evidence have you found about the current state of opinion in swing states especially compared to how Hillary did in 2016. There are several reasons to believe that uh, Clinton's performance was an outlier and that there has already been a reversion to the mean. That is the post-civil rights era mean with this group. One of them is is the, the midterms. The Democrats lost uh, non-college educated whites by a uh, 21-point margin in the in the midterms. That was the same margin as Obama did when he won in 2012. And, you know, of course, it's important to caution that midterm electorates aren't the same as a general election electorate. But in the 2018 midterms, we had historically high turnout. Uh, for a non-presidential cycle, and and you can think, okay, it is it is roughly a signal of where this group has moved since the inauguration of, of Donald Trump, and polls also support this idea. Trump has lost significant ground among whites without a college degree relative to how he did in 2016, and this decline has been especially apparent among um, white women without a college degree. We're very interested in the, the white working class women. You've got some striking statistics about them. Yeah, I mean, you know, the gender gap was pronounced in 2016, certainly. It was pronounced again in the midterm elections in 2018. Looking just at uh, white women without a college degree, and this was a group that he carried by a 27-point margin in 2012. And in an August NBC Wall Street Journal poll that I cite in the, in the piece, he was ahead over a generic Democrat by just six points with this group. And then there was a Fox News poll in September that found Trump beating Biden by one point among women without a college, white women without a college degree, topping Bernie Sanders by three points, and losing to Elizabeth Warren by three points among wow. this group. Wow. Again, this is a group he carried by 27 points in 2016. And again, remember how tiny those margins were in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So let's look at Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin, because you've also found polls of Trump's approval ratings that are illuminating. You know, this is one thing that I, I take issue with a lot of punditry. There is a tendency among voters to move in lockstep. That is to say, you can appeal to this group of voters or that group of poll of voters, but when a politician's um, popularity declines, it tends to decline across all groups. So the, the poll that I cited about those key states, they didn't break out white working class voters. These are the entire state populations. And this, this is from Morning Consult. They've done these polls state-based polls since Trump's inauguration. And his approval, his net approval rate, that is his approval rate minus the disapproval rate, 
has fallen since his inauguration by 23 points in Wisconsin, 21 points in New Hampshire, 21 points in Michigan, 18 points in Minnesota, and 19 points in Pennsylvania. Again, keeping in mind how narrow the margins of his victory were in 2016, these are significant shifts in the electorate. And all of this is context, I think, to point out that this conversation about white working class voters in isolation, I think you laid it out well in the introduction. The thing that I find is always missing from that discussion is how do you define reaching out to this group? What does that look like? How do you reach out to this group without reaching out to other working people? And and the the answer the only answer that that seems to fit is is by de-emphasizing issues like racial justice. And then we have some some research I've written about this at the Nation last year, I believe, showing that you know a race neutral economic populist argument tends to leave voters of color feeling flat. It tends to signal to them that they are not being spoken to or or their votes are not being sought. So I I think that it's a destructive focus on this one group, especially when we're talking about a group that has been long in decline as a share of the American electorate, right? There are, not only is the country becoming more diverse, but white people are becoming more likely to attain a college degree. So we're focusing an enormous amount of energy on this small group, this small and and shrinking group, non-college educated whites. And we're not looking at the bigger picture of how to motivate a broad coalition that includes these people, right? I mean, we should think about 35% of the white working class population is generally on the side of Democrats, and you need to turn them out just like you need to turn out the rest of the electorate. Two current concerns in in conclusion here. First of all, the Democratic debates. What's your assessment of where we stand right now in terms of reaching these different key constituencies? Well, I I wouldn't connect it necessarily to reaching different constituencies, but I, I would say this about the debates. It's entirely likely that the December debate, uh, December 19th debate, will be all white, that all of the candidates on stage will be white. And we started with a historically diverse field, and it will be, I think, a a statement if that comes to pass. And I think that it may come to pass in part, I don't want to, you know, mix up correlation and causation, but I believe that the Democratic primary voters who have been pummeled with the idea that the key to victory in 2020 is winning over non-college educated whites, I believe that a share of Democratic primary voters have internalized that and decided that in this election, with so much at stake, when they are risk-averse, in other words, averse to uh, rolling the dice with Donald Trump, potentially getting a second term, they've internalized a lot of this discourse. And it may explain, again, in part, why candidates who seemed strong on paper at the onset, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, have failed to gain traction. And there's one other thing we haven't talked about yet, voter suppression. 
we believe that it, that it was especially important in 2016 in Milwaukee, reducing the black vote enough to give Wisconsin to Trump, and in Detroit, reducing the black vote enough to give Michigan to Trump. Is there any way to assess the potential effect of voter suppression right now in 2020? What we can say about that looking forward is that since the Supreme Court struck down um, a broad chunk of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County, uh, red states have redoubled their efforts to suppress Democratic turnout with voter ID laws, with widespread voter purges. And I think that we talk so much about whether this candidate can reach out to that group or whether that candidate can reach out to this group. And what that misses, as far as I'm concerned, is that the 2020 election, by all indications, is going to be one of two very energized bases. The Democratic base is larger than the Republicans' base. I think everybody knows that. And at the end of the day, this race is going to come down to whether a fired-up Democratic coalition and the backlash against Trump is enough to overcome the voter suppression, disinformation, etc. Joshua Holland, his new piece for The Nation is titled, What If Democrats Have Already Won Back Enough White Working Class Voters to Win in 2020? You can read it at thenation.com. Joshua, thank you. This was great. Thanks so much for having me, John. What happens to pregnant women when anti-abortion state legislatures grant legal personhood to fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses? What happens when states criminalize women's behavior during pregnancy? For some answers, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She's also written for The New Yorker and The New York Times op-ed page. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you open your new column for the nation with something I knew nothing about, forced surgery for pregnant women. It's a horrible story. Tell us about it. Well, uh, Renat Dre uh, in 2011 had had two cesareans that left her um, suffering and in pain for months. She couldn't pick up her child. She was really unhappy. So she decided to try for a vaginal birth at Staten Island University Hospital in New York. The doctor, while she was in labor, made the decision to um, give her a cesarean against her will. He sliced into her bladder in the process, which apparently is not an uncommon thing to happen. And there she is. And ever since, she's been trying to get justice with no success. She's been suing the hospital for years. And I thought it was a a medical and legal principle that one person cannot be forced to have a medical procedure, for example, a bone marrow transplant, to benefit another. So even if legal personhood is granted to fetuses, one person should not be forced to have a medical procedure to benefit this other, quote, person, legal person. Isn't that still a principle? Not if you're pregnant. In fact, the latest, in her latest court dealings, 
the uh, Kings County Supreme Court held in October that the state, quote, has an interest in the protection of viable fetal life after the first 24 weeks of pregnancy that overrides a mother's objection to medical treatment, quote, at least where the intervention itself presented no serious risk to the mother's well-being. You know, contrast that with, well, bone marrow transplant. If you, if you say, I'm going to give you a bone marrow, my, you know, my bone marrow, and then you change your mind, they are, they are not going to tie you down in the hospital. <laughs> this is so shocking, and it's because, it's because they're women, it's because they're pregnant, it's because pregnant women are deemed to have less right over their body than other women. And then there's the criminalization of women's behavior during pregnancy, which has been a big campaign of the anti-abortion movement and which has had quite a bit of success in many states. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. Throughout the later 80s and 90s, state after state passed laws criminalizing harm to fetuses from other people. Um, and they always said, well, this is all about angry boyfriends who beat up their girlfriends or cases of murder and things like that. And it has nothing to do with women's behavior. We would never criminalize that. But flash forward, and of course they do that, and they use these laws, which were never supposedly intended to apply to pregnant women themselves. More than 1,200 women have been arrested or detained for conduct during pregnancy since Roe v. Wade in 1973. So that's a lot of women. And it's, I think it's increasing. There's a wonderful new uh, documentary by Joe Ardinger called Personhood, uh, which takes up all of these issues. And it does so by delving into the case of a Wisconsin woman named Tamara Lurcher. And she told her doctor, this was in 2014, that before she knew she was pregnant, she used meth several times a week to self-medicate for depression because she had no health insurance. You see how these things are all connected? Yeah. Uh, And uh, she was uh, put into a hospital against her will, and then she was put into jail. And get this, the state provided her fetus, which was at that point 14 weeks old, with a lawyer, but it refused her own request for legal representation. I know, I know. It is, and she, you know, so she was released after 18 days, but now she had a record as a child abuser, and that made her virtually unemployable in her profession as a, a nursing aide. And, and her son was born in perfect health. Um, so there's just, you know, in a way she was one of the lucky ones because other women have been jailed and charged with murder for having stillbirths or had their babies taken away. It's really a shocking situation. And because these women tend to be less privileged, um, a lot of them are white. It's not, I think it's not fair to say it's just black people and people of color. A lot of them are white, but they are disadvantaged and they use drugs. And this makes them very unpopular. The case that you've just described is not in Mississippi or Alabama. It was in Wisconsin. We record our show in Los Angeles, and there was a recent case in California uh, just in the last couple of months involving a woman named Chelsea Baker. Tell us about that one. So Chelsea Becker had a stillbirth. The baby tested positive for meth. So the police arrested her, and and she was charged with murder. And she is now in jail facing a trial 
for $5 million bail. That's so shocking. There's another woman named Adora Perez, also in uh, California, and she's serving 11 years in a state prison in a, for a, in a similar case, um, also for murder. So you say these women need help. What do you think should be done with women who are addicted to meth or, or opiates and pregnant? Well, you know, pregnancy is a time when women actually want to do the right thing. They, I think, would respond very positively to kindly, non-judgmental rehab. Um, there's very little out there for them. Most rehab won't accept people with children, um, and most women have children. And I think that so much can be done. But if nothing is done, or even if it is, there is you are not committing a crime when something goes wrong with your pregnancy. I think that's really the bottom line. And that's what Lynn Paltrow, who is the head of National Advocates for Pregnant Women, who has been raising this issue into public awareness for decades, you know, that's what she says, is it's that you cannot uh, demand behavior of women who are pregnant that you don't demand of other people. If you Once you get go on that path, you are saying women who are pregnant are, lose their constitutional protection. Women who are pregnant are subject to special laws and special criminal prosecutions. That's so wrong. So I notice, just pulling back the focus here, that none of the cases that we've talked about here are about abortion rights. These are women who, in most of the cases that I know of anyway, wanted to have babies, looked forward to giving birth, and who weren't seeking abortion. So where does this intersect with the, the abortion rights movement? Well, it's really the same, it's the same fight. It's about women's autonomy and control of their own bodies. Whether it's you can't abort that fertilized egg embryo slash embryo slash fetus or you have to care for it in a certain way. Those things are both wrong. And that's why you see the same people lined up in, to oppose women's liberty in each of these cases. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, all these issues have come up before. There was the Angela Carter case where she was forced to, this, a woman who was dying of cancer and had a, was pregnant. She was, had a forced cesarean. That was back in the 80s. And she died and her baby died. And after that, this was never supposed to happen again. More than 100 health and women's organizations, including the AMA and ACOG, all said this was terribly, terribly wrong, but it still happens. And similarly, in the case of women being charged with um, when their babies were born, stillborn and they've used drugs, uh, there was a case in 1992 in California that was very similar, and it was thrown out of court. So all these things are coming back now, um, even though they've been settled by the courts already. So you ask, why is that? Well, it's because the pro-lifers are really on a roll, um, and they are just being their militant selves. Last question here. The pro-lifers say they are doing all of this because they are in favor of giving birth to healthy babies. If we were really serious about helping pregnant women, 
give birth to healthy babies, what would we be doing as a society? Oh, well, I mean, we could be doing so much. There are homeless women who are pregnant. There are women who, who have no health insurance. There are women in prison. There was a woman who gave birth in Denver in her cell alone with no help at all. There are women uh, in detention on the borders that are, are having miscarriages at a much higher rate than other women because their conditions are so terrible. We could do so much. You know, and I'm telling you, you know, now we're, we're doing less and less. Now there's uh, food stamp cuts, housing cuts, everything, cut, cut, cut. So this proves they're interested in controlling women, not helping women. Katha Pollitt's new column is titled Fetal Personhood is Maternal Punishment. It appears in the new issue of The Nation, a special issue on the new politics of abortion rights. Thank you, Katha. Oh, thank you for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, and for that we turn to Ruth Marcus. She's a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post and deputy editor of the editorial page there. She's reported on the Supreme Court, also on the White House and Congress, and she's a graduate of Harvard Law School and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Commentary. Her new book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Ruth Marcus, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when Trump took office, he owed a lot to his evangelical voters. And of course, their concern was repeal of uh, Roe v. Wade. And this was, as you say in your book, part of a 40-year campaign by conservatives to get control of the Supreme Court. They'd had a lot of frustrations and more or less defeats along the way. Briefly, let's review that history, maybe starting with Bork in 1987. Yes, the Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation is the culmination of decades of judicial nominations wars. And the first salvo of the modern judicial nominations wars occurred in 1987 with the nomination of Judge Robert Bork. Judge Bork was a judge on the D.C. Circuit where Judge Kavanaugh later sat and he was kind of the original originalist. Um, it's hard to imagine, but back then, originalism was considered a kind of wacky outlier, not taken terribly seriously method of constitutional interpretation. So that's change number one. Change number two is that back then, we were having a debate in the Senate Judiciary Committee and in the country about whether it was legitimate to take ideology into account in assessing judicial nominations, whether you should simply look at whether the person was qualified by dint of their academic and legal experience, or whether you should look at, and in the Bork nomination, the conversation became whether they were in the, inside the mainstream. Um, mm. Of course, the mainstream is in the eye of the beholder. So the Democrats managed to defeat Bork, and who was the nominee who eventually succeeded in his place? The nominee who eventually took uh, Judge Bork's place, uh, number three choice, actually, was a guy named Anthony Kennedy. He was a kind of vanilla Republican, not um, fire-breathing conservative from the Ninth Circuit. 
bigger impact of the Bork nomination was that it was a never again moment for conservatives. Never again would they allow themselves to be outmaneuvered, outspent, outgunned by Democrats in a confirmation battle. And they created through the Federalist Society and associated groups the legal and organizational architecture to make certain that that would never happen again. And yet, Justice Kennedy turned out not to be a loyal right-wing Republican. Reagan's other nominee, Sandra Day O'Connor, turned out not to be loyal to the far right-wing cause. George H.W. Bush's nominee, David Souter, turned out not to be a reliable right-wing vote. So they had many, many defeats along the way. And this brings us up to Trump and the Federalist Society and the evangelicals. They were worried Trump would not do their bidding, that they would have the same kind of problems they'd had many times before. Trump, after all, was a New York social liberal, probably had paid for abortions uh, for a few of the many women in his life. And Anthony Kennedy was 80 years old when Trump took office, but he was not retiring. You open your book with Anthony Kennedy asking for a secret meeting with Trump. Tell us about that. You mentioned the the concerns that evangelicals understandably had about the thrice-married, once-democratic New Yorker who was going to be the Republican Party's nominee. And there was one thing that then-candidate Trump did that was incredibly effective in assuaging their concerns and in securing their votes. And it was to not just write a short list of Supreme Court nominees, but to make that list public. And it did the trick. He, the Supreme Court was a major factor for social conservative and evangelical voters. They broke heavily for Trump. And the main reason they did so was that they were comforted by this list. But there was one problem with the list, especially from the vantage point of uh, Justice Kennedy. And that was that his favorite clerk, Brett Kavanaugh was not on the list. And so when Justice Kennedy went to the White House for the swearing-in ceremony, he was swearing in another former clerk, Neil Gorsuch, to join him on the bench, taking the seat, the Scalia vacancy that was, I can't stop myself from saying, stolen from Merrick Garland. (laughs) Thank you. yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's a little therapeutic to just say that. Uh, in any event, Justice Kennedy says, can I have some time with the president? And he raises something with the president. He says, you have a list. It's got good people on it, but there's somebody missing who you should consider. There was one name that had been very noticeable by its absence from candidate Trump's list. That was Brett Kavanaugh. Justice Kennedy raised the absence of Brett Kavanaugh, said he'd be a good addition to the list. Uh, when At that point, when Justice Kennedy was talking, the Trump White House was listening closely because they really, really, really wanted to do whatever they could do to induce him to retire. Two very big questions. First of all, why wasn't Brett Kavanaugh on Trump's list of potential nominees? So there were two reasons why Brett Kavanaugh was not on Trump's list of potential nominees. One was that President Trump didn't want him on there for the prime reason that he was a Bush guy. This wasn't just somebody who'd been named to the bench by George W. Bush. He had actually worked five years for George W. Bush. He had married George W. Bush's private secretary, who was like a third daughter to President Bush. And 
the Bushes had were famously and flagrantly anti-Trump. Uh, Donald Trump ran against Jeb Bush, so he was not going to pick a Bush guy. And simultaneously, some of the more conservative precincts of the conservative legal establishment were worried that Brett Kavanaugh, though a conservative judge and conservative Republican, was not going to be conservative enough for their liking. And the other big question is, Kennedy had proven that he was not a true believer on the far right of the court. Why did he want Kavanaugh to replace him? That's a really good question. Kennedy, it's important to understand that Anthony Kennedy was very conservative justice. There were just a few areas and some big areas, gay rights, affirmative action, abortion, the sort of trifecta of hot button issues where he deviated. But Brett Kavanaugh was Justice Kennedy's favorite clerk. He would tell his clerks, this is where Brett sat. Brett worked so hard. He would be there when I went home at night, and he'd be there when I came back in the morning. And I think Justice Kennedy just thought of Brett Kavanaugh as a nice young man who was hardworking and diligent and would be a reasonable replacement and in some ways kind of the most reasonable replacement that he could expect from in this era and from this president. So you say Kennedy thought of Brett Kavanaugh as an appropriate and future Supreme Court justice. What was Kavanaugh's trajectory starting as a young man? He also thought of himself as an appropriate and future Supreme (laughs) Court justice. Um, The book is called Supreme Ambition, and it has, as you might guess, two meanings. Um, One is what we've been talking about, the conservative movement's um, desire for three-plus decades to cement its conservative majority on the court and the ways in which that had been thwarted and the lengths that they were willing to go to to make sure it was not going to be thwarted this time when they had a chance to get five conservative, their fifth conservative justice on the court. But it's also about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's ambition, which was interesting because he was not the standout student in college. He was not the standout future Supreme Court justice in your midst at Yale Law School. When he wrote his Yale College essay, it had two questions on it, and he, the, both of them he wrote about his love of basketball. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, despite that kind of low profile, he very early on in his career, after he kind of lucked into a Kennedy clerkship and then um, was moving up the ranks of the conservative legal establishment, just started talking really early on to friends about his interest in going on the Supreme Court. And from the moment he joined the D.C. Circuit, 12 years before he was nominated to the Supreme Court, it was clear once you get to that really important court that he had he had a shot. And when Donald Trump was elected, that was his amazing shot. Now, you said that Kavanaugh was a Bush protege and a Bush Republican. What were Kavanaugh's views of Trump? Well, um, Kavanaugh's views of Trump, uh, one of his uh, friends said he thought he was a, quote, buffoon, close quote, like the rest of us. But he, he as a judge, kept those to himself and among his friends. And uh, you have to uh, get to the Supreme Court with the 
Republican president who gets elected. I'm sure he would have preferred to have been chosen and almost certainly would have been chosen by a president, Jeb Bush, because you can't imagine um, as much as President George W. Bush was an albatross around Brett Kavanaugh's neck before he was nominated. He was a huge help to Brett Kavanaugh in getting him through the Senate, uh, calling key senators after he was nominated. So um, he didn't um, privately think terribly much of Trump, but that didn't matter. Um, Trump Trump picked him uh, somewhat to his surprise, and uh, he went with it. So fast-forwarding here, we get through the hearings, the, the, the shocking testimony of Christine Blasey Ford and, and Kavanaugh's... Uh, what shall we call it, performance uh, in response. Was there any... I would call it outburst. Outburst. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you. Because, uh, it, well, you know what? It wasn't a performance. It was real. Was there any consideration in the Trump White House of pulling Kavanaugh's nomination after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony? Well, um, one of my favorite stories in the book involves the White House counsel, Don McGahn, who was the fiercest inside advocate for Brett Kavanaugh. He had been pushing Brett Kavanaugh even when Trump was assembling his list as a candidate. So it's after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. Republican senators are convinced that Kavanaugh is sunk. The president's been calling around seeking advice about what to do. And he's trying to reach Don McGahn, his counsel, and McGahn is not taking his phone call, ducking repeated calls from the president and his Don McGahn's assistant calls him and says his deputy calls and says the president's trying to reach you you have to take his call McGahn is convinced at that point that the president is calling him to say we need to pull the nomination and so he tells her I don't talk to quitters (laughs) so that tells you something about what was going on in the White House at the time And I read in your book that Ivanka also weighed in on whether Kavanaugh's nomination should be pulled. Well, the um, internecine battles in the White House are like, you know, Kremlinology. So Ivanka and Jared were at odds with Don McGahn. So anybody Don McGahn liked, they hated, um, even though they had once been allied. And then in the end, when the Um, Issues arose with Christine Blasey Ford, Ivanka Trump, champion of women, decided it was time to pull the plug, but uh, that that didn't happen. But she did make her views known. Just hypothetically here, if Kavanaugh's nomination had been pulled, who would have been next in line? Would this have been a disaster for the Federalist Society and the evangelicals? People were talking about pulling the nomination. One of the amazing factoids in the book is that Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society official who is kind of the judge picker and judge maker in chief in this administration, at one point was so freaked out by the Ford allegations that he urged pulling the nomination. But um, wiser and smarter political heads prevailed because as Mike Davis, Chuck Grassley's chief nominations counsel told me, Kavanaugh by that point was too big to fail. There wouldn't have been time to confirm a replacement before the election. They would have lost the Senate, or at least they were at risk of losing the Senate. That would have meant a conservative nominee wouldn't be confirmed. They would be at risk of losing the White House in 2020. So they were not going to allow that to happen. However, um, had they pulled Justice Kavanaugh's nomination, I think the next person uh, in line 
would have been Amy Coney Barrett, a actually much more conservative judge uh, who had just joined the federal appeals court in Indiana, much more um, willing to overturn precedent and much clearer in her opposition to a constitutional right to abortion than Justice Kavanaugh. How far right do you think Kavanaugh will be on the court? A lot of us worried that the the expose of his youthful sexual offenses would push him farther to the right, you know, sort of like Clarence Thomas, who survived a similar situation. What can we tell about Kavanaugh's place on the court at this point? In terms of the Clarence Thomas analogy, I think it's clear that the really searing confirmation hearings, which I also covered, of Clarence Thomas and the Anita Hill testimony did embitter him and did push him even further to the right than he would have been otherwise. Justice Kavanaugh has told friends repeatedly that he wants to be the same justice he would have been had this all never happened. That's a little bit difficult to achieve, but he's a much different person than Justice Thomas. He really wants to be liked by the establishment. He loved teaching at Harvard Law School. He wants to be, it's going to be very difficult for him, but he wants to be welcomed back there in a way that Justice Thomas never cared about. And so I think where he's going to end up is on a conservative spectrum. The conservative spectrum runs from super conservative, which is Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's first nominee, and at the other side of the spectrum, still really conservative, is the Chief Justice John Roberts. And I think where Justice Kavanaugh is going to situate himself is somewhere in between the Chief Justice and those three more conservative justices. That's the kind of breathing space we have to to work in. It's not that much. Um, In his first term, he was significantly less conservative than Justice Gorsuch and much closer to the Chief Justice. Last question. Is it over now? Has the right finally achieved its 30-year quest for control of the court? Well, for the moment, it is over. For the foreseeable future, it is over. We're going through impeachment now. We're going to be going through an election next year. Whatever happens in all of that, the president's legacy, for better or worse, is going to be these two justices on the Supreme Court and the way he's also transformed at the same time the lower federal courts. Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post. Her new book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks so much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 